we're preparing teachers to be in programs where bilingualism and biliteracy are the goal, not English acquisition as the as the main goal, right? And so I think that that has has implications. Um, number one on the um, their knowledge base around these program models, and so preparing them to work in a 90-10, a 50-50, a two-way, a one-way. Um, and so all of these different models are important to know about because our, our teacher candidates graduate and they may be the Spanish teacher in a dual language model. They may be an English teacher in the dual language model. They may teach both languages depending on, on their school site. And so, so we, we keep this in mind when we, when we prepare them to teach by literacy. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. What has changed in bilingual teacher education over the last five to ten years, and how have those changes affected the field? How have policy changes and initiatives like the Seal of Biliteracy impacted dual language programs and bilingual education? What are some of the most effective ways of preparing pre-service and in-service teachers to work with dual language and English language learners? We discuss these questions and much more in part one of our two-part series with Dr. Seda Hernandez, Assistant Professor of Dual Language and English Learner Education at San Diego State University. Dr. Hernandez teaches university courses on multilingual education, bilingualism, biliteracy, language policy, and English language development. Her research focuses on the impact of state and federal language and education policies on language and literacy practices in Spanish and English in schools, homes, and communities across California, the United States, and internationally. Her work strives to better understand the language and literacy development of emergent bilinguals starting in early childhood and specifically how educational language policies and program models facilitate or undermine language learners' access to equitable schooling experiences. Before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Hernandez, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and any others that you listen to. You can also engage with other great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue to bring you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's part one of our two-part conversation with Dr. Seda Hernandez. Professor Seda Hernandez, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve, for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure speaking with you as well. We had a really great conversation out at Kabe back in March, which was um, a long time ago. Uh, and as these things generally go, it took us a little bit a little bit of time to get things together, but really glad to have you on the podcast for season three here. So I want to start out by asking you a relatively general question to kind of set the stage for the rest of our conversation. And that is, what do you think has changed most um, in bilingual teacher preparation over the last five to 10 years and why? 
Wonderful. So before I talk a little bit about the last five to 10 years, I think it would be helpful to know that um, I earned a bilingual teaching credential in California in 1999. This was the year after Proposition 227 passed. And so basically, I earned a credential which gave me, uh, which qualified me to teach in both Spanish and English at the elementary level. And a proposition that dismantled the vast majority of bilingual programs had passed. Amazing timing. <laughs> yes, I know, kind of ironic. And so I, I began teaching um, in the LA region for, uh, in, in, in English only programs. Um, following my, my credential program. And one of the things that, um, that I think is huge when we think about these last five to 10 years, um, and particularly the last five, is we've seen this shift with a focus on multilingualism and bilingualism as, as an asset, as, as a strength, as something that we hope um, children have access to, these types of bilingual and multilingual programs. And if you think about the folks after me, um, post Prop 227 in California, that earned a credential. They weren't receiving the message that bilingualism was important, and they weren't receiving the message that their Spanish, um, and I use Spanish as the example because it is the language that the vast majority of our English learners speak in the country, mm -hmm. as well as in the state of California, but recognizing there are multiple other languages that, um, that people may be speaking and also will be um, earning credentials in, in, in addition to English. And so when I think about what, um, what kinds of messages they've been receiving as individuals in our K-12 system, um, both explicitly and implicitly. It's the idea that their Spanish is not an asset or that their bilingualism is not valued um, and, or their potential for bilingualism. And so I think one of the things that we're seeing shifting in these last five to 10 years is number one, the, uh, the seal of biliteracy, thanks to organizations like Californians Together and um, and advocacy groups that really promote um, English learner uh, achievement in schools, um, folks like that are working with GABE. And, uh, and so when I think of, of the seal of biliteracy, I think of symbolically what it does. So it's not just that, that students receive and you know, recognition that they're bilingual and biliterate in two or more languages, but they're also being told from an early age that speaking, reading, and writing more than one language is important. And yeah. it's valued, um, and so I think that's huge. Um, and there are there are concerns with how the seal of biliteracy is is um, is you know moving forward. Um, mostly, great things are happening, but I know that that's something that you cover elsewhere. But the other thing is that um, Proposition Fifty Eight passed, and this is huge for bilingual teacher prep because we were in a restrictive language policy era post Prop 227. Mm -hmm. So when Prop 58 passed in California um, in 2017, this gave educators and, and districts much more leeway to be able to offer high quality bilingual programs. And of course, these programs are largely dual language programs as in terms of the ones that are the most research-based, the ones that have bilingualism and biliteracy as the goal, um, in contrast to the Prop 227 era when the vast majority were transitional early exit or late, late exit bilingual programs where the, the home language was really used um, to get students into English as soon as possible. Right. 
Yeah, just taking a few things out of there that I think are crucial. And thank you for giving us that that historical uh, perspective. And I, I didn't know when we last spoke that you received your certification back in 99. That is uh, that is highly relevant for anybody listening that's in California. You, they completely understand why that's uh, ironic, as you said. And uh, you explained it well so that everybody across the country can understand why it is as well. But that must have given you um, a really interesting uh, perspective for sure. So a couple of things that I wanted to bring out, like, I think, you know, we always mention in this podcast that, you know, uh, bilingualism is an asset and we want to come at, come at it with an asset based approach. But, you know, in many cases, it's, it has been historically something to be kind of fixed, not something to be embraced. I'm in Massachusetts, or I taught in Massachusetts, um, and our elevations in Massachusetts. And, you know, Massachusetts also recently um, had something very similar happen in terms of going from um, from English only uh, to, to more of a, a dual language approach. So I think, you know, it, th- there's a lot to be said about that mindset shift. And I like how you said explicitly and implicitly kind of affects the learners, which is crucial and gives them kind of the ability to understand that, yes, like you haven't, this is an asset. You mentioned the seal of biliteracy as well, which we've covered, um, which I think is, is just like kind of uh, become a bit of a center point of, um, of, of actually giving these students something um, that they actually get upon graduation and checkpoints along the way so that they can actually value it as something that's part of not only their, their, their culture and their home life, but also part of their, um, their academic trajectory and, a, and an indicator of their, their, uh, certainly their future success. Yes, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm glad that you brought up the home because that message going, you know, trickling down to the home level is critical. We need yeah. families on board. We need, you know, migrant and immigrant families to know that their home language is an asset and that it's um, something, you know, it's, it's tied to, to decades of research. I mean, longer. I mean, we have so much research that shows how important it is um, that students' first language is, is fostered and that it does, of course, facilitate their learning of a second or third language. But but when we when we stop looking at bilingualism as an obstacle, as you mentioned earlier, and we we have this symbolic shift, right? That it has it has real implications. And I just want to share with you briefly what I see in, in our classrooms at the university level. So we're training bilingual teacher candidates, right? And they have to take a couple of prerequisite courses. Number one, they have to demonstrate that they have high capacities in Spanish um, in terms of their reading, writing and oral um, use of the language in, in addition to their English. But they also take a course where they cover kind of the basics around language policy and multilingual program models and the, the ideologies behind them. And I share this with you because I've taught that particular course before and I've noticed a shift with students who have received the seal of biliteracy, really embracing and, and their, their bilingualism in that classroom space in a different way than our students who have been very much a product of an English only um, schooling. And I think that's profound. And so I think that um, that gives me hope that we're moving in a direction where if, if our K-12 experiences for our English learners are more positive in terms of their language and their culture, they're much more likely to, number one, want to become bilingual teachers, and number two, are, are going to be much more successful in whichever career they choose to be in. So just wanted to share that, that anecdote with you. Oh, that's great. And I'm glad you did. That kind of feeds right into the next question that I had. And, and just like to preface the next question, I, mean, I think like, you know, you talk about the seal and you talk about the shift. Um, you know, you just kind of mentioned that you're preparing students to be, I think, uh, it, it's kind of creating a pipeline and creating a mindset shift that hopefully is going to allow for, um, for more qualified uh, bilingual teachers that obviously right now is, is crucial in many school systems around the country. So, Transitioning to my next question, what, I mean, I know we still have a ways to go. This is relatively new. We'll learn a lot in the next five to 10 years. 
But what have we learned based on all these positive changes that have happened and largely positive changes that have happened in California? Um, what have we learned so far about how these changes have impacted teachers, future teachers, uh, and their students, and how uh, how do they plan to pre-service work for future bilingual teachers now? I don't know you got into that a little bit, but I'd love to dive into that a little more. Right. Well, I can. So I, I am involved in schools, and I do professional development as well. And we have strong relationships with local districts um, here in San Diego. So I, I, I'll start with what I'm seeing at the university and how it's impacting teacher education. So these changes that are mostly positive, right? We have to also think about equity and, and, and what happens um, with these changes, like who's being served and who's, who's um, you know, I, I always, we always in my, uh, in the program at San Diego State, we center equity as at the core for English learners. So I just wanna make sure that that's something that, that, that I say I think is important for teacher education programs, especially as we think about the most vulnerable in our school systems. And I know that, that you understand that very well. Um, in terms of the way that we prepare teachers with these changes, I think one of the things, and I'll share this as someone who teaches a biliteracy course. So, so I teach a year long course, a methods course for our, our multiple subject candidates. These are our elementary teachers that are, that are simultaneously taking coursework and uh, practicing and they have clinical practice and the California Commission on Teacher Credentialing requires that they that they, um, they do 600 hours of practice. And so, of course, we pride ourselves in really connecting theory and research and really being at the cutting edge of what, of what the research and the theory and the practice tells us about best um, educational practices for all students, but especially our English learners. And when I came on board in 2015, I noticed that our biliteracy course still had a little bit of um, the ways in which, you know, looking at, at previous versions of the syllabus and looking at um, some of the texts, we were preparing teachers in an era of um, multiple bilingual ed programming models, if you will. So, so to be really clear, early exit and late exit transitional bilingual education that was more popular um, around Proposition 227 in the late 90s, that, that's something that we're not really seeing in California. In fact, if someone is, if, if a school is using the transitional bilingual programs or other models, most of them are trying to transition to dual language. So I think that has real impact on the ways in which we teach our courses, because now we're preparing teachers to be in programs where bilingualism and biliteracy are the goal, not English acquisition as the, as the right. main goal, right? And so I think that that has, has implications, um, number one, on the... Um, their knowledge base around these program models. And so preparing them to work in a 90-10, a 50-50, a two-way, a one-way. Um, and so all of these different models are important to know about because our, our teacher candidates graduate and they may be the Spanish teacher in a dual language model. They may be an English teacher in the dual language model. They may teach both languages depending on, on their school site. And so, so we, we keep this in mind when we, when we prepare them to teach by literacy because the teaching of literacy looks different if you're doing a paired literacy approach, if you're doing a, you know, a non-English language, and that's very common in 90-10 models where our candidates are, or our teachers are teaching in Spanish, for example, um, the vast majority of the time. So the literacy is in Spanish until they start transitioning into English in mm -hmm. second and third grade. And, and we know these, these programs work well. My own children are in these programs. Um, we know that when they're research-based and they have high-quality teachers and, and support from admin, et cetera, we know that they work well. And so, um, so having 
having them prepared to know about these different models, what literacy instruction will look like, um, and by literacy specifically, how to teach. Um, you know, one of the things I notice as a teacher educator working with bilingual candidates is that um, oftentimes I will see Spanish uh, reading methods in a classroom where they're taking what was taught or how they were taught in English or they're applying these English methods to the Spanish language and, and, and reading in both languages, of course, there are transferable skills and we know that that reading and habits of mind and, and conceptual understanding transfer to additional languages as we learn them. But we also know that the methods are not the same in Spanish and English. Spanish is a syllabic method or the syllabic language. Um, we, you know, in English, we, we really focus in the early years on or the beginning stages of literacy with letter identification and sounds and that's not something you know in, in Spanish the focus is largely on on the sounds and the syllables and so it's a much more transparent language than English and so there are some nuances that we have to we have to make sure our teacher candidates know so that they're not applying mainstream reading methodologies in English in a Spanish uh, literacy classroom. Yeah. And then like so much of what you said, I think reminds me of just like when I became a teacher myself, I won't tell the whole story, but it was somewhat of an accident. I had taken some education classes, but not a lot. And so my inclination, I taught Spanish was to teach the way that I was taught, which if I think back to my, frankly, to my sort of very traditional um, education in Spanish, it wasn't very effective. I mean, I didn't really learn Spanish to become proficient in Spanish until I, I, I traveled in college and I was never exposed to it at an early age. Um, and I mentioned that because I feel like what you're, in many ways, what you're trying to do um, is to sort of reprogram the situation and not have people kind of revert back to either the way that they were taught um, or the way that the old sort of methods um, uh, were, were, were shown or were taught or were, or were evaluated or assessed in some ways. And I think that's really important. The other thing that, that I wanted to, to dive into a little bit more deeply, you mentioned the equity piece. Um, and I think you just gave us a really good overview of some kind of the pedagogy and the methods and the strategies that, um, that, that teachers need to know about as they move forward. You know, you, we see, and I just read an article today that had to do with dual language programs and access to them and the equity. Um, you know, I think most people think that, that, that uh, bilingual education and dual language programs um, are good for everyone, but I, th I think most people would agree, at least in our space, that they're particularly good for English learners. So. I, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear how great bilingual teacher programs or how you all um, are going about addressing that equity. You mentioned that it was there. Is there a kind of a, a, a deliberate method of approaching it, um, given the shift toward these dual language initiatives? Absolutely. So, so our department has a, an explicit stance in terms of the the pedagogy and the, uh, and the ideologies that we bring. And we, and we recognize and, and state that that education is never neutral. And of course, I'm, I'm thinking of, of Paulo Freire and, and the work in around critical literacy. Mm -hmm. um, so our, our department historically, I mean, for the last 40 years, its, its name has changed, but it has always been about teaching, um, preparing bilingual teachers and, and, provi and providing professional development and master's degrees for educators, working with our language learners. And and so with this explicit stance on critical pedagogy and on social justice, we've been able to really make equity critical in everything that we do across our programming. And so in every course that our students take, they are required to engage with their ideologies of language, for example. And, and really what I mean by that is 
the ways in which our students think about language, languages, um, English is plural, Spanish is plural, right? The ways in which they think about the language users, and that's something that we're not immune to if we're bilingual or multilingual. We have beliefs about different languages and the ways in which, you know, we assign status to languages. Um, it's very much part of, of, of our schema, and I think that when we unpack that for our teacher candidates and we help them help them think about that, and, and, and largely our, our students having the requirement to be bilingual, a large majority of them are Latinx students. Mm -hmm. um, but because students are Latinx or because they, they speak Spanish doesn't necessarily mean that they've been able, that they've had the opportunity to think critically about these issues, especially if they've had a subtractive schooling experience where their language and culture from their home wasn't valued. Um, and so we, we engage them in these ideas around ideology. We have them do, you know, they read, they dialogue, we, we, create these opportunities for them to cross the border with us. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I can talk more about that, our binational project, but I think, I think that's critical um, because we want them, and, uh, and I'll give you a quick example about one of the promising premises of, of dual language is that we elevate the non-English language in these programs, right? right? And we do that not because, you know, we, it, it's really done because we know that in, in here in our context, English is the dominant language and there, and English is not going anywhere. Right. And that's something that, that no one's you know, necessarily trying to change. It's the idea that our, that our students, if they're told bilingualism is important and they, they are learning Spanish and English or Mandarin and English or Arabic and English, that they hear folks using the non-English language as much as possible because the second they walk out of our schools, they will be hearing English predominantly. Right. And I know some students live in communities where maybe, you know, maybe they're in an ethnic enclave where they're hearing some of their home language more so, but regardless, it's in the media, it's on the television, they're surrounded by English. And so, so good dual language schools really elevate the non the, or the, the non-English language, the minority language in that context. And so we do the same thing in our program. We elevate Spanish. We make sure that we have lots of texts in Spanish. We make sure that, um, that our classes are either taught in Spanish or bilingually, um, and that we, we make sure that students, um, so students have not just exposure to the Spanish language, it's not enough to speak it and to use it, but to think critically about it, to have the pedagogy in both English and Spanish, to understand the differences in instruction and literacy, for example, um, with, these, with um, these two languages. But, but I think the language ideology piece is important, and I think also we, we have them unpack, and this um, comes from the work of Cristina Alfaro and Ana Hernandez, um, who look at, um, at the ideological and, and pedagogical clarity that they have, right? And so, of course, we want our teacher candidates to advocate for all students. But what happens when we don't focus on our most vulnerable, and in our case, we're, we're, we're really centering the English learner, um, is that very often they're the ones whose needs aren't met. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, you know, and I think about this in terms of, you know, just to share with you something personal, I'm, I'm a privileged parent. I have class status. I'm a university professor. And my two children are in a dual language program and, and a, that has a two-way model. And so they're, they're in, in interacting in, in their classrooms with, with students who have a different class status. Mm -hmm. um, Spanish is their first language. My children's first language is English. Um, and so in those spaces, of course, I care about my children's education, but I'm, I, they're going to be fine. Yeah. They're going to be fine regardless. And so I, I uh, even as someone who, who um, has children in these programs, I always make it about the English learners. How are they being served? Are they, are, are there, um, 
are their needs being met and are their families being heard? Because sometimes we see in these, in these programs that, um, that middle-class families like myself can, can very much um, dominate uh, resources and, and discussions and have really have the principles here. And we want to make sure that, that, and I know this has come up before in previous podcasts um, that you've done, but, but I, I share that with you because these are things that we want our candidates to explore. And so they are in a variety of school sites when they conduct their clinical practice. We cross the border with them so that they can see how schooling happens in, um, in Baja, California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also want them to really understand the binational context so that they know that they may have someone in their class who was in a, in a school in Mexico very recently yeah. um, and, and vice versa. That we want, and we want to make sure in our partnership that our, that our colleagues in Mexico that are receiving students um, from, from our educational system on the U.S. side, that they, they know how to serve these binational students. Um, in, in, and specifically, especially in this context where there are higher levels of deportation and sometimes families choose to leave for different reasons. Right. But we have more binational students in schools in Mexico now where they are not necessarily um, fluent in Spanish. They look Mexican. Their parents are Mexican, but they're, 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 they're not Spanish speakers. And so they sometimes... Um, without without these initiatives are are being left behind. Yeah, and you all have at San Diego State University obviously have a, a you know an advantage, a benefit of being so close to the border there and being able to to do that kind of thing, the binational uh, experience. I was reading an article recently about now I I don't know if I have the term right, a trans border students, students who cross back and forth. And this is something that I feel like people like me up here in the Northeast and other parts of the country don't really recognize or know a whole lot about. So I'd be curious to hear, and I think our listeners too, um, about what you think um, your students, your, your pre-service, um, you know, teachers are, are taking from that experience of, um, of learning on both sides of the border. Could you talk with us a little bit about that binational and a program that you have? Absolutely. So the, the binational program um, has been, re- it really started years ago um, before I came on board um, in, as a partnership with um, with educators in California and educators in Baja. And, and one of the things that, one of the projects that came out of it is called a, a, a teacher, binational teacher education project. Mm-hmm. And I'm part of this, this pilot program where teacher educators from San Diego State, uh, UC San Diego, and from uh, the Universidad Pedagogica Nacional, so the university that basically prepares um, teachers that are already in the field, and then the Escuelas Normales, which is where they prepare pre-service teachers, so the, the normal schools, if you will, in English. Um, and these, these universities, um, these four institutions, and, and, and really the, the, um, with the support of the California Department of Education and the um, educational system in Baja, we are, we're able to learn about each other's uh, political context, we were able to learn about the ways in which we prepare teachers. And what I loved about the program was that it allowed me, it was really professional development for me as a professor because it, I learned so much about how students are served in Mexico. I, bet, I learned yeah. about how, you know, just the ways in which we're dealing with some very similar issues on both sides. Um, I learned about um, the profile of these binational students. So, you know, I think very much in our in our national narrative, we have this, uh, this image of what an immigrant or a migrant or someone you know who 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 moves um, for 
and, and very often for, for opportunities or be, to flee uh, danger and violence. And one of the things, um, as we are constantly dehumanizing them in the national narrative, I think one of the things that was, that's, was as helpful for me and our students is to see, is to see the ways in which um, students are negotiating and navigating these systems on both sides. And so many of them are, you know, elementary, middle, or high school students that in, you know, have an interruption in their schooling on one side of the border and then now are on the other. And if we have more bilingual teachers on both sides, we're better able to serve these binational students because this is a reality that's not going to change overnight. Um, and I think, you know, our, our candidates have shared with me after having these trans-border experiences where they visit schools in Tijuana and Tecate um, and, and, and teacher candidates from Mexico come over here to San Diego and visit our schools in Chula Vista and San Diego. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, in those exchanges, what students are reporting is that they have this profound appreciation for, for, how, for number one, living near the border. Um, some of our students are binational students, so they identify as folks who either are um, transborder or binational, but they very much live this reality of crossing borders yeah. um, regularly, but some of them haven't. And so I think what's, what's, what's especially powerful is it's influencing the way that they, that they teach. So it's not just about having bilingualisms, you know, bilingualism and, and biliterate skills, but it's about um, really understanding the binational context at the socio-political level, um, we cover sociolinguistics, you know, translanguaging comes up, the idea of, of, um, of how people are mixing and, 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 and going between languages fluidly at the border, right? This is part of our region, and it's um, not something that I think everyone understands in the nation. Thanks for joining us on part one of our two-part series with Dr. Seda Hernandez. Be sure to join us on part two when we get into translanguaging in lots more detail, discuss the dangers of home language loss, and also talk about in-service opportunities for teachers of English learners and dual language learners. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.